Well, thank you guys all for being back here for the second session of the Alpha course. Uh, how many of you guys, uh, first time, weren't here last week? Okay, well, welcome. It is great to have you guys here. And so I guess that means the rest of you were here last week. How many of you are not here this week that were here last week? I guess time will, time will tell. Well, for those of you who were not here, uh, I'll just tell you real quick. I'm Frank Loria. I have the privilege of hosting the Alpha course, and we welcome you here. Hope you enjoyed your meal, um, and we hope you enjoyed the evening. Um, uh, for those of you who may have missed last week, if you'd like, uh, we have a YouTube channel, or you can go to the Lakeview Christian Center app or the website, and uh, you can pick up the, the, the uh, session one last week, or at the end of the evening when you leave, how many of you have CD players? Okay, just wanted to see how old we are here. Okay. Um, so if you have a CD player, or if you know someone, if you know someone that does have a CD player, we actually have CDs downstairs of last week and this week. Or again, just go online and watch last week. I thought last week was a really good topic. Uh, is there more to life than this? And so I'm trusting and hoping that you guys are back for more than just the food, that the, you know, it was, it was dinner and, as I said, something to chew on, and so that you were happy and uh, actually challenged by last week. Well, let me just kind of give us a quick... Review. Oh, by the way, before we do that, I want to wish happy 43rd wedding anniversary to Donna and Mike Bellarino. Congratulations, you guys. Wow, 43 years. That's quick. How many of you in the room not 43 years old? Not even 43 years old. Okay, so, okay, so. All right, quick review from last week. What we talked about last week, we really talked a lot about faith, that all of us all of us exercise faith. That faith is not a religious thing, necessarily. Faith is something we exercise every day, right? Whether we get in, whether, whether we get in the car or have dinner at a restaurant where we've never met the chef, get in an airplane, all these things. We live by faith constantly. There's not a day that we live that we do not exercise faith on an innumerable number of times. We don't even think about it. We talked about the fact that this, that faith is not religious faith should not be blind faith that if there is a god and he does encourage us and he did give us a mind then we should be able to use that mind in a rational intellectual way but also in a very humble way because if there if he is a god if there is a god by definition he is supernatural and i am natural and if there is a God, then it would be incumbent upon that God to communicate himself to me, a finite, natural being. So, you know, I, so there, there are things that we believed as kids, and it was okay. We just didn't know anybody. We were just little kids, right? Um, so these are some of the things that we believed as kids. Remember, as a kid, we believed everything our parents told us until we got to be about, what, 13? And then they didn't know anything until we got to be about 24. Um, but things we believed as a kid uh, that our parents told us is someone maybe four years older than us. So how about, if you swallow watermelon seeds, an entire watermelon will grow inside of you. Do you remember that? Okay, and then you saw a pregnant woman and you thought, oh my God. Um, um, 
So, I mean, th these are just things. So things we're building. If you touch a toad, you get warts. Do you remember that? I mean, did anybody ever get warts from that? No, okay. Um, if you urinate in a pool, there's a special dye that turns it bright red so that everyone will know. How many, did you ever hear that? You hear that, right? Okay. How many of you have never urinated in a pool? Just, okay. it's just not possible, right? It's just not possible. Um, if you swallow gum, it'll stay in your body for, four, seven, for seven years. I actually believe that until I checked it out just last month, that it just kind of stuck in there, kind of just... Okay, so, and if you're a kid, everybody believes in that guy, right? How many of you still believe in, okay, just. <laughs> but what happens when you realize he's dead? Okay, I, mean, I mean, what was that like for you, the trauma of? Anyway. So there's lots of things, but today as adults, we make faith decisions. We make a lot of faith decisions that have a whole lot more gravity to them, right? As I said, driving a car, uh, having surgery, right? You're sleeping through this. You, how do you know what's going on? Surgery, it's faith. Um, living in Orleans Parish. <laughs> I mean, tremendous faith. Um, and and, and here's, here's the truth of the matter. We don't even know that we're going to make it back to our pillows tonight, do we? I mean, there are, I, just, I just checked out this statistic. Over 330,000 people will die on the planet today. On a, on the, a day. That's, that's about four people a second die a day. In the United States today, around 7,900 people won't make it back to their pillows. So why am I bringing that up? Well... <laughs> the reason I'm bringing that up is because life is very fragile and we just don't know what we just don't know. And I asked you guys the question last week. Remember, I had Rutendo come up and he, and he held a, a little ruler and that represented physical life. And, and, and together, it, we, we realized that we spend a ton of time critically examining what we how we're going to spend that short bit of time, which, and we don't even know where we are in the continuum. We don't even know how, if today is the last day. We don't, we don't know. We don't think it is. We certainly hope it's not. But we're somewhere in that life's continuum where heart, the heart will eventually stop. And I asked you guys the question last week, how many of you believe that there's something on the other side of your last heartbeat that's going to last forever and you believe it's going to be good. And almost every, virtually every hand in the room went up. And I asked the question, why do you believe that? What do you base that on? Just because your parents taught you something? Because you did this your whole life and that's what you believed? But as I said, we spend so much time critically determining what are we going to study? Where are we going to live? What is our occupation going to be? Uh, all of the things we, and I think we should, critically examine them. But if we believe there's something on the other side of our last heartbeat, should we just leave that to assumption, to a hope so, I keep my fingers crossed? Can I know? And that's when we, why we step into this alpha course to find out things and, and really to think about things that you and I typically don't even think about. 
if you grew up religious, going to church, you probably just assume, I assumed a lot of things. And, the, you know, the, the things, I, I didn't even really, I didn't even know who this Jesus was. I just basically made up Jesus to fit what was manageable to me. And I believed in a Jesus that really didn't even exist. Um, but when I was introduced to the Jesus Christ that was presented in the Bible and in history, not the one that I had created in my own head, out of my sincere, personal, stereotyping convenience, and I became a Christ follower, that was 47 years ago. I was a sophomore at LSU. He changed my life completely. But you know, it was then that I started wondering, is it reasonable to consider faith in the person and the claims of Jesus Christ? Is it reasonable? What's the evidence? Can I know? Um, and as I said, tonight we're just, this is an introduction to the Christian faith, which is really an introduction to the Bible because Christianity is based on what the scripture says. So in, in your manual tonight, we're on page 12 and uh, I wish I could find my manual, but um, so it says here, he, he existed. Now, now here's a fact of the matter. No critically thinking, rational, unbiased historian believes that Jesus Christ of the Bible was a fable. If so, you have to deal away with all other historic figures as well. You have to deal away with Caesar or Plato or Socrates or any of the others. Because Jesus is much a historical figure as any of them. And we have so many extra biblical accounts. Okay, when I say extra biblical, I mean outside the pages of the Bible. Noted historians, okay, whether it was Flavius Josephus, who was uh, a Jewish historian who also was very influential in writing much of Roman history, Suetonius and Pliny and the disciples. I mean, these are all first century historians that lived during the time of Jesus or right after the time of Jesus. Um, the greatest, considered the greatest Roman historian was a guy by the name of Cornelius Tacitus. And this is in his annals. He wrote, Consequently, to get rid of the report that Nero had burned Rome, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. Now that is exactly as the scripture declares it. And so here is Cornelius, and I mean, are we related or what? I mean, do you see that? I mean, it's just, must be a distant relative. Um, but, but so we see this, Cornelius was anything but a proponent of the Christian faith. But he was a historian, and he was writing as history as he knew it. Okay. And we could go into a whole bunch of others, but, but what about the Bible? How do we know the New Testament hasn't been changed over this two millennia? How do we know that? How can we possibly know what the original documents said? Well, 
it's fascinating the tremendous evidence I believe that is there to support the scriptures. Now, I want you to open, if, if you haven't opened your, your booklet yet to, um, to page 12, um, you'll see here um, something on, on page 13. I want you to just, if you will, if you've got a pen, I think we have pens out there for you. I'd just like you to write a couple of these things down if you would. You don't have to. But if you will, I help you. Uh, it will help you. There is a there's a science. There's a literary science called textual criticism. Okay. Okay. Don't don't hurt anybody. Um, there's a literal science called textual criticism, and within the science of textual criticism is something called the bibliographical test. And I'll just kind of go through this. Look, if you guys don't like all this stuff, just just take a nap for a while, and we will wake you up. But this is I think this is kind of interesting stuff. But so the bibliographical test. There are three tests within the bibliographical test to, to examine the authenticity of a historic document. The, the quantity of the manuscripts. Okay, how many do we have? That's the number of extant or existing manuscripts. Okay, this is, we're talking, we're predating now Gutenberg's press. You understand that? We're not talking about printing press. We're not talking about Xerox copiers. We're talking about handwritten, manuscript means manu, hand writing, okay? So to determine the, the historicity and, uh, of, of a document, we look at the quantity of the manuscripts. How many do we have? Then we look at the quality of the manuscripts, the consistency. Now, what I mean by that is the consistency is, let's say you have 10 documents. Let's say you have 100 documents. Let's say you have 1,000 manuscripts. Is, is Codex 1 or document one saying the same thing that codex or document 98 is saying. And then you start looking at these documents to see, are they saying the same thing or is it just a mumbo jumbo of, of conflict and, and, and contradiction? And so this is secondly, so quantity of manuscripts, how many do we have that we can examine? How consistent are they? Are they saying the same thing? And then thirdly, what's the time span between the original writing, the original author, and the first manuscripts that we see? Okay? So how many we got? How consistent are they? And how long between the author's writing and the first manuscript that we have? Okay, so I want us to take a look at some of the... We're going to look at three of these real quickly in, in, your, um, in your manual. Uh, Let's look here at um, Herodotus. Okay, he was a Greek historian. He, he wrote on the Greco-Persian Romes. He wrote between 488, 428 BC. Earliest copy, 8900, 80 AD, not 80, AD 900. About 1300 years between his writing and the first copies that we have. You see that? And we have... 117 manuscripts. Now, some of these numbers have been updated from your manual, so you may see numbers that are higher, because I want to make sure we've got these numbers up to date. Okay? Let's, let's look at Thucydides, another Greek historian, Peloponnesian Wars. Same thing, wrote about 460 to 400, okay? About earliest copy, 900 AD, 1,350 year time lapse, and we have about 104 of those manuscripts, okay? So, okay. Um, here's Livy, Roman historian, 59 BC to 80 AD 70. Okay, 400s of the earliest copies. So we've got a 400 year time lapse. We have about 169 of those copies. 
right? So that's, that's interesting. That's pretty fascinating. Well, let's, let's look at Homer, okay? Not, sorry, not... Um, okay, here, here's Homer, okay? Uh, the Iliad, okay? The World of the Trojan Wars, 800 B.C., Earliest copy, 400 B.C., about a 400-year lapse, and we have 1700s. That's an, that's an updated number, I know, in your, in your manual. 1,757 uh, manuscripts, okay? So well, let's just take a look at that. Again, nobody questions any of these, right? I mean, you and I read, maybe you did, I think I remember reading the Iliad. I remember, you know, these, some of these historians. Um, well, let's look at, at the New Testament. The New Testament, which is the testimony of Jesus Christ and the history of the, of the church. Okay, we have, it was written between 40 and 100 AD. We have earliest manuscripts around AD 130. And then we have full manuscripts showing up about 350. Okay, so we've got anywhere between, what, 40 and 300 years, or 200 years even, between the original autographs and the manuscripts that we have. Okay, how many manuscripts do we have existing today? We've got nearly 24,000 manuscripts. Okay, in Greek, in Latin, in some in Aramaic, we have different languages, Syrian, all this. So we have 24,000 handwritten documents with an accuracy of 99.5%. See, this is, this is the important thing. This is the consistency part that we're talking about. Now, this does not prove that the New Testament is the God-breathed word of God. But it does tell us something. When it comes to textual criticism, if you're going to play fair, you've got to accept the... New Testament with a whole lot more gravity than you will really any other work of antiquity. And so when it comes to us beginning if, to use our brain, if we're going to do this in an unbiased way, we're going to take a look at the facts and see if God didn't, if, if in fact this is God's doing, give us something that we can really sink our teeth into to where there is ample evidence based on literary science okay pretty interesting and I, I think it's fascinating too that so many people are alive during the time of the circulation and even the writing of the original documents and we'll, we'll see a little bit more about that in a minute ff F. bruce who is a professor of new testament doc of uh, new testament criticism at uh, manchester university he wrote this he says, it, is, it was not friendly witnesses that the early preachers had to reckon with. In other words, the first apostles. It was not friendly witnesses that the early preachers had to reckon with. There were others less disposed who were also conversant with the facts of the ministry and the death of Jesus. Catch this. The disciples could not afford to risk inaccuracies, not to speak of willful manipulation of the facts which would at once be exposed by those who would be only too glad to do so on the contrary one of the strong points 
in the original apostolic preaching is the confident appeal to the knowledge of the hearers. They not only said, we are witnesses of these things, but also, as you yourselves know. Had the tendency been to depart from the facts in any material respect, the possible pressure of hostile witnesses in the audience would have served as a further corrective. So these talks aren't happening hundreds of years after the writing. This is happening at the same time in which people are reading and are eyewitnesses of this. Now on page 14, I'm just going to glance through this real quickly, but these are some of the things that, that the Bible tells us. And let me just say this to you that, that are here for the first time. Our intention here at Alpha, okay, is is to hopefully get us to become more conversant with what the Bible says, to let the Bible speak for itself. Okay? Whether you choose to believe that or not, that's between you and God, if there is one. Okay? So it's not our intention to get you to, you know, as I told the folks, you guys that were here last week, this is not a membership drive. It's not trying to get you to change your church or denomination. This is for us to come and find out what does the Bible say? And when, last week you weren't here for this, but I asked everybody that was here, how, how many of us grew up reading or studying the Bible, whether it was the Hebrew scriptures? Uh, and by the way, uh, happy Purim for all of my Jewish friends out there. And sorry, we don't have any noisemakers or anything else, but great time to read the book of Esther. If you've never read the book of Esther in the Hebrew scriptures, it's a great read and a great story of uh, Judaic history. Um, so, uh, just a little aside there. So, uh, so I want us to, to, to see that. We are here to see what does the Bible have to say? Because when I asked you the question last week, how many of you grew up reading, studying the Bible? I think we had maybe eight or nine hands go up in a room of, I think last week we had 142. So let's find out what it says. Because most of us don't know what it says. I had no idea what it said. Okay? So the Bible says here that, and you can just, again, take some time during the week, if you will, um, that Jesus had a human body, that he got tired, hungry. He had human emotions, angry, spirit, you know, love, he expressed love and sadness. He had human experiences. He was tempted. He learned. He worked. He obeyed. But, and here's the real question. Was he more than just... This, this is, again, really, this is where the rubber hits the road. Was he more than just a man? Was he more than a great human or a religious teacher, or as some would even think, the illegitimate son of a Roman soldier. Who was this guy? I mean, this is the topic tonight. Who is Jesus? And again, many of us who grow up in a predominantly Christian environment, regardless of the denomination, we're like, duh, Frank. I mean, really? Uh, but yeah, really. So let's just take a look and see what does the Bible say that Jesus said about himself? We're on page 15. And I definitely would like, again, if you would, just, I'm going to give you some fillers, just some things here, just to write in the side here of some of those scriptures that we talk about. So we're going to go to the Gospel of John here. I'm going to put this scripture up here. You should see that on, on page 15. John, the sixth chapter, the 35th verse. Okay, and we've got page numbers for you guys as well tonight, but... You should see this in your manual. This is what Jesus said. Now, again, I am underscoring these. These are not underscored in the New Testament. Jesus says this. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger. 
And he who believes in me shall never thirst. Now, you guys should remember that scripture from last week because we talked about that. But I, I, I make an emphasis on the I and the me because Jesus emphasizes himself. He makes the emphasis himself. He doesn't say my teaching is the bread of life. Now, I'm not saying his teaching isn't the bread of life, but he's saying I am the bread of life. He who comes to, he doesn't say my teaching. He says, he who comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in, he doesn't say my teaching, but certainly if you're going to believe in him, you're going to believe in his teaching. Who believes in me shall never thirst. Now, I would just want you to write there that his claim here is that he fills, he, he claims to, he claims to, may not, it may be an erroneous claim, but he claims to fill our emptiness. Okay, tonight you came here and you, you were hungry and your stomach's emptiness got filled temporarily. Jesus says he comes to fill our mind, our emotions, our wills, our desires to where they'll never need to be topped off. And he says he does that. His claim is he does that with himself. It is he who does that. Okay, let's just look at another um, Look at another one here. This is the eighth chapter of the Gospel of John. Again, I've underlined this for emphasis. I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. If you weren't here last week, we talked about Jesus' claim in the 14th chapter of John that I am the way and the truth and the life. This is the claim he makes for himself. And that this is actually just either audacious narcissism uh, or insanity or is he who he says he is can he back up these statements right and that's a good question how are you going to back this up that you really are who actually knows you just make a bunch of statements but this is what he's claiming the light of the world if you follow me you shall not walk in darkness how many of you like to walk in darkness you ever do that in your house I mean, or somebody else's house or wake up at a hotel and you don't know where you are and it's totally dark? It's not a good feeling. It's a feeling of uncertainty and insecurity. He said, but you'll have the light of life. So what is he saying here? I just can't. He gives direction and purpose. You follow me, you'll, not know, you'll, you'll know where you're going. You'll have the light that I give you. Because Jesus said, remember, I am the way, the truth, and the Life. I'll give you my life. A couple more real quick here. The Gospel of Matthew. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Just, just pretend for a moment that this is true. Okay, pretend you believe this for a minute. How do you feel about this statement? Hey, if you come to me, anybody weary? Anybody burdened? I'll give you rest. Um, take my yoke. He's not talking about eggs here. He's talking about an oxen yoke. Okay, that's something you would bear, a burden you would bear. Take my yoke upon you. Learn of me. Get to know me. I'm gentle. I'm humble of heart. And you will find rest for your 
souls. Quite a statement. What if it's true? What if he actually can come through with that and make that in our lives reality? Okay, so what is he saying here? He says, I'll give you peace, belonging. That's, that's an amazing thing in this lonely world in which we live in today. Okay, how many people are just taking their own lives because of weariness and loneliness and hopelessness? And suicides are through the roof. But he says, I come to give you peace and belonging Next week, we're going to really hit hard on this word, what belonging, what that means from, from God's perspective, because that's what we want. We don't like to be isolated. We want to belong. And again, never alone. These are the claims that he makes. Okay, one more. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. And he who believes in me shall Never die. And then he attaches a question to that. Now he's brought this question uh, to, to a, a lady by the name of Martha whose brother has died. You can read that in the 11th chapter of John. And Martha asks the question, if you'd have been here, Jesus, my brother would not have died. And Jesus is claimed, it's written in the Gospel of John, that he says, uh, Martha, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live spiritually, okay? Got to do it. Sorry. Okay, so here's the dash. <laughs> okay, can you see that little ruler right there? It's even smaller this time. Okay, it says, he who believes in me shall live in the line even if he dies in the dash. You with me? Thank you for shaking your head. Okay, so I'm the resurrection and the life. If you believe in me, you will live forever, even though you die physically. And he who believes in me will never die. Because what Jesus says is, again, here's the claim, believe it or not, that somewhere in this continuum where we make a choice for Christ, if we do that, he gives us life and life begins there. And so even after the heart stops, that spiritual life continues. I just put off this earth suit. Okay. And if the scripture is true, I'm with God forever and he gives me a new life. And that's what Jesus is saying here. If you believe in me, you'll never die. Remember last week we talked about the fact that in the Bible, death is not annihilation, but separation. And that's why Jesus came to give us life. Why would he come to give us life if we already had life? Seems kind of obvious, doesn't it? Unless, if this is the truth, Jesus knows something that we need that we don't know that we need, but we need to know that we need. Did I say that right? Okay. And so, what is he saying here? What he's saying here is, he gives us eternal security with God. Now, this is a statement that most of us in our religious beliefs, beliefs uh, or our religious beliefs even, say you can't really know for sure. Can you really know? 
Well, if you'll hang around for week four, I promise to answer that question, okay? So that's week four. That's only two weeks from tonight, okay? That's, that's easy. So anyway, that, we're going to really hit that hard. But these are the things that we've talked about. Gives, uh, he fills our emptiness. He gives direction and purpose. He gives peace, belonging, that we'd never be alone. He gives an eternally secure relationship with God. And here's the thing. Jesus' teachings, Jesus' teachings really centered on himself. It's, if you take all the other religions of the world, with all due respect to all the other religions of the world, if you remove their teacher, if you remove Muhammad or Buddha or Krishna, you remove any other, or Confucius, you remove any of them, their religion stands based on the teaching. But if you remove the person of Jesus, and I think you're seeing this from the scriptures I just showed you, if you remove the person of Jesus from his teaching, he connected himself inseparably from his teaching. So to remove Jesus from his teaching is impossible. He and his teaching are intertwined. He said, he didn't say my teaching is, he said, I am. And so it just, again, doesn't make it the truth. Again, next week we're going to talk, I'm going to give you a comparative religion class in five minutes next week. Okay, and I won't charge you at all for that. It's just totally free, a comparative religion class. So, um, okay, so Jesus made indirect claims to being God and he made direct claims to being God. And I don't have time to go through both of those. Maybe you'll have a chance to do that at the table tonight. But I want to go through one of them and it's in the Gospel of Mark, the second chapter and the fifth verse. Okay, I don't have anything up on here, this, but just, just, just for Follow me for a moment. So Jesus brings his disciples to a town called Capernaum. It became the hometown. Jesus, according to the scriptures, had healed a bunch of people. And his name was gaining great renown as being a healer. So he goes into this house. And everyone crowds into the house. To where... Mark records there is no room for anybody else in the house. It's packed. Okay, the fire marshal's having a fit. So, um, so all of a sudden, there's a commotion overhead. Well, what has happened is, according to the scripture, is that there's these four men who have taken a friend of theirs who's paralyzed, and they've break, taken him up the steps to the roof and begun to dislodge the roofing material from the roof and they begin to lower their paralyzed friend down in front of Jesus. Pretty amazing thought. I don't know how the woman of the house felt at that moment. Um, I don't know how the paralyzed guy felt at that moment. Uh, maybe he didn't feel anything because he was paralyzed. Maybe. Okay. Um, sorry. Um, so he, he's lowered in front of Jesus, and this is what Jesus says. Now, what would you expect him to say? I know, what I, would, I, I know what I'm looking for, but what does he say to him? He says, son, your sins are forgiven you. Okay, that's not exactly why I'm here. Um, but the scripture goes on to record this. That there were several religious leaders there. There were scribes and Pharisees. These were the, the muckety-mucks of, 
of, of the, Judeo, um, the Jewish hierarchy. And, and Jesus, the scripture says, understood what they were saying. It says, Jesus discerning what they said, said to them, what is easier to do? To say to this man, your sins are forgiven or rise, take up your bed and walk. And it's recorded that Jesus said this, but that you know that the Son of Man has power to forgive sin. Okay, so you know the Son of Man, and that would be a moniker that Jesus would use for himself, oftentimes, I'll go into that later maybe, that you know that the Son of Man has the power to forgive sin, I say to you, rise, take up your bed and walk. And the scripture records immediately, he rose, took up his pallet, and walked from the place. They understood, those, those scribes and Pharisees understood that no one forgives sin but God. And that was the thought that Jesus discerned them saying. They're saying, wait a minute, who is this guy who forgives sins? No one can do that but God. And that's when Jesus said, what's easier? Say, your sins are forgiven or rise, take up your bed and walk. Now, what would have been easier for you or me to do? Your sins are forgiven, because who the heck knows, right? I mean, who knows? I can say, your sins are forgiven. Ooh, and we have some music in the background. Um, I ain't saying, rise, take up your bed and walk, because you're going to know I'm a fake at that moment. So it'd be easier for me to say your sins are forgiven, because nobody knows. But for Jesus to say your sins are forgiven, if what the truth, the message of the New Testament is, for Jesus to say your sins are forgiven, a sacrificial lamb of God, a lamb of atonement has to be slain for the sins to be forgiven. And what Jesus is saying there is, I have the power to heal and I have the power to forgive sin and I will prove it by laying down my life. So that's the comment there. That's one of many places in the New Testament that Jesus claims to be God. Well, okay, so cutting to the chase, he either was God come in the flesh or he was not God come in the flesh. So let's look at this. Some of us are familiar with this. This is taken out of uh, C.S. Lewis's book, um, Mere Christianity. Jesus claimed to be God. And let's just put together just a little decision tree analysis here. So he... Either he was or he wasn't, right? It's either true that he was who he says he was, or it's not true that he was who he says he was. Now, let's say he, it's not true. He knew it wasn't true, or he didn't know it wasn't true. Well, if he knew it wasn't true, there's a liar, right? He knew he was lying. And, and he's going around saying, truly, truly, I say to you. He's saying, I am the way, the truth. He's saying all these, he's actually a liar. He's a, he's a bald-faced liar. Not only is he a liar, he's a hypocrite. Because he's telling everyone to live in a particular way. And his very teaching and what he's saying about himself is a farce, a complete farce. Not only is he a hypocrite, he's a demon. Because he's telling people, I'm the way, follow me. And he's leading them straight to hell. If there is a hell. He's leading them somewhere, but it's certainly not to the truth, not to the one true God. 
And not only is he not a liar, a hypocrite, a demon, he's also a fool. Because he died knowing what he was saying was nonsense. I have a hard time with that. Maybe he didn't know it. Maybe he was just nuts, right? We're just crazy. But there's not even a critical historian that believes that Jesus was a lunatic. To stand in front of the most powerful leaders of that day and stand strong against them and not end up in the fetal position somewhere as a lunatic is, I don't have enough faith to believe that. I just don't. So I cannot believe that he was sincerely deluded. Now, here's, here's what C.S. Lewis had to say about this. This is on, this is, part of this is on page 16, but I don't think all of it is here. This is, now remember what I told you guys about Lewis. Lewis was an ardent atheist. Okay, he was a professor, professor of ancient uh, English literature at both Oxford and Cambridge, Cambridge universities. Became an ardent follower of Christ. And this is one of the things he wrote. He said, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic or a, on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg. Or else he would be the devil of hell. I guess that would make him a deviled egg. Um, <laughs> So, so you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. He said, you can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. Catch this. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Interesting. So. He's either a liar or a lunatic. Or Lord. And if he is. If this claim is true. That leaves every one of us breathing with a decision to make if he claims to be god and is god then there's a decision that is placed before each and every one of us my rejection could be an active rejection i could be a, a staunch proponent or probably opponent or i could just be a passive opponent either way I could oppose him even by going to church every Sunday, just trying to keep him at arm's length, thinking I can check the religious box and I'm okay. So what evidence supports what Jesus allegedly claimed? Well, we can look at his teachings. We can look at the miracles, supposed alleged miracles. His character. We could look at Hebrew scripture prophecy. We're going to do that in week five. We're going to look at a lot of scriptures from what we call the old testament or the hebrew scriptures the tanakh we'll look at a lot of that and to, to, to be able to look at are there enough pieces of evidence to find this person of jesus not just in the new testament but throughout the hebrew scriptures that would purport that he actually is the atoning lamb of god the messiah of the jews 
and the world who comes to take away the sin of the world. Either he was, is, or he's just wasting away in a grave somewhere that we don't know where it is. But that's really the point. Christianity rises and falls upon one piece of evidence. Just one piece of evidence. Did he come out of the tomb alive on that first Easter morning? If not, Christianity in total is a farce. It is not to be believed. It is a lie foisted upon the entirety of mankind since the first century. But it's true. Paul, who was Saul, who was the former persecutor of the church of Jesus, wrote 13 books of the New Testament. He writes this to the church at Corinth. This is really interesting. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and then he appeared to Cephas. Cephas is another name for Peter, the Apostle Peter. Then to the twelve, the apostles. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Though some have fallen asleep, meaning they have died. And then Paul goes on to write this to the Corinthians. He says, And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. And then he goes on to write, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. It's nonsense. You are still in your sins. If only in this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. If there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And let's just soak that in. Now many have tried to explain away his resurrection. This is, um, it's on page 17 of your manual, but you don't have to go there. What most agree is, that, is this. There was no body found. Then where was it? What happened to the body? Well, Many, through history, have attempted to put together many arguments that the women, actually, in the, in the darkness of the morning, went to the wrong tomb. Again, these are, these are real arguments. I'm just not, I didn't come up with these today. These are arguments that have been around for a long time, that the women went to the wrong tomb and then ran back to the apostles and saying, he's alive. Well, once that word got around, the Roman soldiers would have just said, excuse me, um, ladies, I know you have a trouble with direction, but uh, he's here. He's here. You went to the wrong tomb. Um, maybe his disciples stole his body. That's what happened. Now, the scripture records that there was a Roman guard put in front of the tomb. Okay, that's at least 10 Roman guards in front of the tomb. At least. Okay. What the disciples would have done. Now, remember, when Jesus was taken captive, what did they do? They, they hightailed it. They didn't stay around. But they're saying the disciples mustered a strategy and their strength, and they came and they overwhelmed this Roman guard, pushed this 2,000 pound stone away, and grabbed Jesus' body and began to 
tell everybody he's alive. Are you going to die for that lie? I mean, people will believe, people will die for a, a lie believing it's the truth. Happens all the time. I don't know who's going to be, believe, uh, die for a lie knowing it's a lie. Maybe some will. But I don't believe these guys did because they were running. The other was that the Jewish officials stole the body just to make sure that the disciples didn't come and steal the body or anybody else steal the body. The Jewish officials said, look, let's do this. Let's get one step ahead of them. Take the body so nothing will happen. Well, the disciples go to the tomb. It's empty. They're hallelujah. And the, what's going to happen then? You know what's going to happen then? It's going to excuse me. We knew you'd try this. You tricky people, you. And that didn't happen. Or that he swooned. Uh, okay, this is... I mean, there's actually a guy by the name of Hugh Sconfield that wrote a book, The Passover Plot. It sold a lot of copies in England, and the man was actually found out to be... None of his credentials actually were his credentials. He just made them up. But, but he basically believed in what's called the swoon theory. That Jesus really didn't die. He just swooned on the cross. Um, and they took him down, they put him in the tomb... And they wrapped his body. And in the cool tomb, he resuscitated. Okay, now picture this. If you, and, and I'm going to give you some information on the, on the crucifixion of Jesus tonight. You guys can get this. If you want a copy of this, I'll, I'll put it up here in a minute. But this is, the, this is on the physical death of Jesus. This is the American Medical Association article on the crucifixion of Jesus. Nobody. Nobody. Arnold Schwarzenegger in his prime. Nobody survives crucifixion, Roman crucifixion. You, you just don't do it. But again, somehow, Jesus, then he, he comes, he kind of resuscitates in the tomb. He's able to take this hundred pounds of herbs off his body and the wrappings off his body. He's able to push aside this 2,000 pound, pound uh, stone. Now remember, he's lost most of his blood through the scourging and the beatings. And then he overcomes the Roman soldiers and then with nail holes in his feet walks to his disciples and presents himself as the resurrected God alive from the dead you thinking that's God when he comes out of that tomb I'm thinking you look God awful but you're not God so you know and there have been many 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 that have tried to uh, discount and completely uh, re rebuke the the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and I and I've just I just bought a couple of books tonight, which I thought we've got a book for you tonight if you'd like to have it. This is a book. This is a like a cliff notes of all of Josh McDowell's writings. Called More Than a Carpenter, McDowell in university was did he was a staunch opponent of Christianity. He was he was just challenged by by Christians. Hey. If you don't believe it, we don't want to believe it if it's a lie. I don't want to believe a lie. You want to believe a lie? I don't have any interest in believing a lie. I don't want to believe something just because it makes, it makes me feel good. And I don't want to not believe something just because it may make me feel a little bad. Okay? So, McDowell writes this. And when he, when he, when he writes this, it's after doing tons of research. He comes to the conclusion that, in fact, Jesus is who he says he is, the resurrected Son of God. Uh, this is, uh, Frank Morrison was a, was a, um, a British historian, who's, uh, pardon me, journalist, who set out to completely refute Christianity. 
Um, and this is his book, Who Moved the Stone? Now, I want you to, I want you to read this here. Okay, can you read the first chapter here? Did, can you see that? I can't see it from here. Um, the title is The Book That Refused to Be Written. He set out to write a book completely refuting Christianity. Couldn't do it. Um, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. I, I gave you a little bit of a sense of Lewis. Here's one of my favorites. My, my wife's family uh, on her dad's side is Jewish. And I, I, I love this book. I just finished reading it for the second time. Stan Telchin was a very successful... Yeah. Stan Telchin was a very successful um, Jewish businessman in... Um, he wasn't in Bethesda. He may have been in Bethesda, Maryland. His, wife, his daughter goes off to Boston University. His Jewish daughter goes off to Boston University. Uh, long story short, becomes a follower of Christ. She, she, she gets up the courage to tell her mom and dad, I've become a follower of Jesus. You can imagine, as a good Jewish parents, they're like, what? This, no. And so Stan basically leaves his business and begins, to, again, for the good of his daughter. He wants his daughter to be delivered from this nonsense. And, um, and guess what happened to Stan? Um, Stan not only left his wildly successful insurance business, he became a pastor. <laughs> and um, it, it's a fascinating book called Betrayed. What I love about this book is that Stan Telchin does a great job of explaining Judaism to we goyim, they're Gentiles that just don't know. It's a, a, a wonderful read. I would recommend this book to you. But again, someone that was completely opposed to the, the message of Christ. So, all right, let me close up with this. So many have wrestled with this question, who is Jesus? And maybe tonight you're wrestling with that question in a way in which you never have before. I hope so. Um, this question has really echoed through the canyons of time into the hearing of each and every one of us on this March 7th evening. The question of the resurrection of Jesus and who he is is the question that he, I would argue, if he is alive, resurrected from the dead, he is asking directly to each and every one of us tonight. That question, and, and let me tell you why I say that, because in the, I'll, I'll shut up after this, um, maybe. Um, here's Jesus, the 16th chapter of Matthew. He says, when Jesus came, Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? So he's asking his disciples, hey, you know, what's, you know, what's the scuttlebutt on the street? What is it? He said, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Well, John the Baptist was dead, so he'd have to be resurrected or reincarnated. Others say Elijah, the prophet, he'd have been dead for like 700 years. Okay? And still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And then this is what Jesus asked them. Now, before I show you this, this question was asked, if in fact it was asked, about 2,000 years ago to a bunch of disciples. I would ask you to consider this. That question is being asked by Jesus of Nazareth tonight to you. And here's the question. But what about you? Who do you say that I am? See, Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life, and he who believes in me will live even if he dies, and he who believes in me will never die. Then he adds, do you 
believe this. Who do you say that I am? And maybe you think about that tonight. Maybe in a way which you haven't before. Have you just assumed who he was? Have you just refused to actually consider who he was or is? Could you possibly consider this in an unbiased way? Who do you say that he is? Even if you don't like the answer, who is he? He's either the resurrected son of God or a liar or a lunatic. But we have to make the choice. So here's the question, and I, and I stop. What are the ramifications for you and me if Jesus Christ did not stay on that inside the tomb and was resurrected? What does the person of Jesus really have to do with me in the way I live my life? How important is that? How close does he want to be? What really is the significance? Have I possibly, here's another question, have I possibly not critically examined who Jesus is closely enough or really at all? So next week, um, maybe my favorite week, or maybe week four, next week the topic, why did Jesus die? Look, I was shocked when I began to look at this. I had never considered what the Bible had to say about why Jesus died. And if you come back next week, you'll, you'll, you'll get that answer, and I hope you will be back with us next week. So let's do this real quick. Let's take a quick break, get back to our tables as quickly as possible, and get our conversation in. For those of you who have kids... We're going to start flashing the, um, the lights at about 8.40. Okay, if you start getting bored before that, you understand. You can leave anytime you want. There's, the doors aren't locked. You can leave whenever you want. So anyway, thank you all so much for coming. Appreciate you being here.